The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Sponsored by The Bullet Group, putting you in tomorrow's conversations today. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. This is Arun Sudharman from The Homes Report. Um, and we're delighted to be joined in New York today by Tom Doktoroff, who is a global advisor at management consultancy Profit. Um, but perhaps as importantly, uh, is someone who's really one of the foremost specialists when it comes to marketing, advertising and communications um, in Asia and in particular in China where, if I'm not mistaken, you spent two decades, almost two decades, right? If you count Hong Kong, 22 years. Okay. So there was four years in Hong Kong. I suppose we One have country, to. two systems. I suppose yeah. we have to count Hong yeah. Kong now. Um, you were Asia-Pacific CEO at J. Walter Thompson, uh, and before that you headed North Asia and China Correct. Um, for J. Walter Thompson. So, first of all, Tom, welcome. Thank you. It's, uh, it's great to have you here. Of course, J. Walter Thompson now no longer exists in that form, and maybe we'll talk about that a little later on. But let's talk, first of all, um, about a topic which is evergreen, I think. Uh, So we used to talk, back when I was working for uh, Campaign Asia Pacific, as it's now known, and this is going back uh, more than a decade now at this point, and one one of the areas of real interest at that point was this idea that brands from China would go global. Uh, they would emulate the experiences of um, companies from Japan and Korea, uh, and they would outgrow their domestic market, perhaps, and uh, become sought-after brands on a global stage. And it seems to me that that hasn't happened, Tom, and I'm curious to know why not. Well, I think for the same reasons we probably talked about 10 years ago. Mm. Ultimately, the question is twofold one is is there an appreciation between brand and product Mm -hmm. and structurally is that reflected in the differentiation of marketing and sales right particularly as it relates towards an international organization and so far neither of those breakthroughs have happened at least past an inflection point while there are a couple examples now that didn't exist a few years ago, like DJI, the drone manufacturer, Mm -hmm. they were born in a different way. So DJI uh, was born with global management, you know, out of Hong Kong, with highly empowered local operators to engage with local communities in, you know, very um, effective ways. Uh, TikTok, as we all know, Mm -hmm. has 250 million uh, users outside of China, 250 u- users inside China, known as Douyin in China. And again, this is something that is leveraging the passions of youth today, number one, and the existing scale of the platform. So it already had a pre-existing network effect. But in general, you do not have centrally empowered marketing departments to ensure that products can compete at a price premium in developed markets. Mm -hmm. The spread of Chinese brands in emerging markets continues unabated, Mm. but this is a trend that has been going on for a long time Mm -hmm. because the basic price value equation is superior to many local uh, countries' output. Okay, so you trace the issues 
as you as you mentioned, as you did back when we first talked about this, you trace the issues to the structure and the thinking. Well, I think structure reflects culture. Right, and so culture. So I think that China is the ultimate top-down, absolutist, authoritarian country, both in terms of relationships within families and relationship between state and ruled. And this is also reflected in the uh, structure of companies and the culture of companies, extremely hierarchical, and people are not empowered. So as whereas in the West, we have very bottom-up uh, culture with a lot of creativity coming from lower levels. And in China, you don't. Mm. Even Huawei, mm. which is frequently touted and has made some progress in Western markets, albeit not at a price premium, penetrate with their mobile phones, not to mention their telecoms equipment, they still operate very much as the Communist Party operates, you know, mm. with the same structures and the same leadership control and command modus operandi. Mm. So I wouldn't even count Huawei as a true success at this point. The mm. proof is in the pudding when you compete head-on with local brands in developed markets at parity or premium prices. Mm. And there's not one example of that happening, with the exception of DJ, DJI. Okay. So within that cultural context, do you think it's just very difficult to get to a point where brands are appreciated in the same way as they are in perhaps a, a Western cultural context? Not from a consumer standpoint. Mm. From a consumer standpoint, China is still very brand-friendly, although the digital ecosystem has commoditized it, and we can talk about that a little bit mm -hmm. if you wish. But consumers need brands very much because it's very important, especially for a new generation, for identity affirmation. Mm. And brands are highly sought after, not just as badges, but as experiences. So there's a sharp divide between the corporate culture which precludes the creation of sustained brand equity and a brand purpose that remains consistent over time rooted in a clear relationship with consumers and the corporate structure. Mm. So when it comes to the structure you mentioned the this issue around marketing and sales yeah. or marketing being sales. I wouldn't say that. Marketing mm. is usually in service to sales. Okay, right. So what you normally have are sales barons who run their silos and those people are the ultimate power brokers because the Chinese, culturally speaking, revere the concrete. Mm -hmm. the dependable, the reliable, the quantifiable. And that's what sales is. Sales mm -hmm. is measurable. It's KPIable. So marketing is much more abstraction, which tends to evaporate if you don't have accountability. Right. Okay. Now, has it surprised you that we're here in 2019 and we still don't have, you know, the Chinese equivalent of, let's say, a Sony or a Samsung? No. I remember writing in my first book that was published back in 2006, A Long Road to Rome. Mm -hmm. And I was not expecting this breakthrough because everything, once you analyze it on a cultural impulse level, mm -hmm. is quite etched in the DNA of how things operate there. Mm -hmm. I would call it the cultural DNA, even though that um, 
might be an oxymoron. So you cannot sweep away 3,000, 4,000 years of Confucian culture with 10 years of Ken and Barbie and Tmall. Mm -hmm. So I think that China is evolving. It's becoming more modern. It's becoming more internationalized. But it is not spinning off its cultural access, and it's not facing a cultural identity crisis. And many economists and other wise men and women will argue about whether the growth model has run its course or not. Mm -hmm. But the fact is there's no short-term pressure at this point to mm -hmm. truly evolve China's structure and how it manages its resources. And when you say that, do you mean that, for example, a company like Huawei mm -hmm. can still perform extremely well by focusing on its domestic market? Is it, is it The pressure isn't there for it to become that successful overseas? No, I won't say that in Huawei's case. In mm -hmm. general, in yes. General, yeah. The domestic market, if you take a look at the growth of the consumer segment in third, fourth, fifth, sixth-tier cities, there's a lot of room for deeper penetration. Mm -hmm. And incomes have risen significantly despite the fact that growth rates are slowing. Mm -hmm. So every Chinese company that I work with is still focusing largely on the local market. Mm -hmm. And that's the wise thing to do. Mm -hmm. The Chinese are nothing if not pragmatic, mm -hmm. and they're incrementalists. In order to move abroad into developed markets, you really need to embrace the idea of mold-breaking breakthrough and in innovation. Mm -hmm. And that's not something that the Chinese do because it's inherently destabilizing. Mm -hmm. So the Chinese are doing what's right for the Chinese, and it's working fairly well on a consumer level. Mm. In fact, you know, Profit, the company that I, the consultancy that I work for, we produce a brand relevance index. And basically, it's trying to assess the importance of brands in the lives of consumers on four different dimensions. But long story short, in 2016, 20 of the most relevant brands in China for the Chinese were local. In 2018, 30 brands are local. So, oh. so the Chinese brands, although they're not charging the price premiums, mm -hmm. are doing better, and they're mm -hmm. innovating more, and they're seen as innovating more. But again, it's incremental innovation. Mm. Now, many Chinese companies have, have, you know, they've brought on a lot of agency support mm. to ostensibly help them build their international brands, um, help them communicate better in international markets. And in some cases, particularly in the case of Huawei, they're spending a lot of money mm. on these relationships. Um, is there a disconnect, though, between the, the idea of bringing in these agencies, the money they're spending, and the results that they're getting? I think so. I think, again... If they're succeeding, they're able to charge the same price as a Samsung or an mm -hmm. Apple, and they're not. And if you take a look, for example, at Honor, the brand, which is spending lots of money to establish a youthful image, uh, which also uses very expensive celebrities, mm. you can examine that communications and you ask, what is its center of gravity? Mm -hmm. What is its core proposition other than a young vibe mm -hmm. and a colorful look and feel? Mm -hmm. And it's not there. Yeah. So you really need to ask, 
who is empowered in making these decisions mm. and who is supervising this. It's done centrally, I would imagine. Mm. Uh, and then there is local execution, but I don't think that there are true local marketers in Western Europe, for example, mm -hmm. or local seasoned marketers. What local? By I mean mainland Chinese. They're able mm -hmm. to really be effective bridges between the the headquarters, which is always going to have a strong role in the approval process and the marketplace. Mm, okay, and and with that in mind, how do you view the rise of, let's say, the CMO class in China itself? I mean, is that a, a kind of a role that you've seen increasing sophistication? I think the CMO role has become much more transactional. Mm. So the CMO is largely focused now on optimizing through data, programmatic, partnership with uh, BAT, Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent, mm. transactional efficacy. Right. And I think that the fear of missing out, and I don't mean in a FOMO sense, uh -huh. but in incremental sales despite the price, has degraded the marketing function. Uh -huh. So there are more titles called CMO, but in terms of the effectiveness of the entire industry in terms of balancing long-term brand equity generation and loyalty versus short-term transactional efficacy, mm -hmm. uh, it's going in the wrong direction. Mm. So you mentioned Honor. Obviously, it's a Huawei brand. Huawei is, is probably the Chinese company that has been in the headlines the most yes. over the last 12 months. It's faced, um, I mean, it's always faced quite a lot of scrutiny, but in particular, in, in over the last year, it's, it's faced setbacks. Mm -hmm. um, it's been banned from selling its telecoms equipment in the US and, and in Australia. Uh, and it's it's facing decisions, I think, still in New Zealand and the UK and I think Germany as well. What, what do you think Huawei, if you look back over the last decade, what did it get wrong to get to this point? Opacity. Mm. I think in order for Huawei to have any chance in either mobile phones and particularly telecoms equipment and particularly advanced telecoms equipment, there needs to be a very clear trust but verify regime implemented mm -hmm. where the rules of the road are very clear the most sensitive components are off limits that the operator knows when it will walk away if there are any violations and everything is enforced through third-party observation mm -hmm. and until that happens and huawei understands the vibes that it emits from the very structure of its organization and the culture of its organization and the heritage of its organization, mm. then I don't think it's going to be successful in penetrating Western markets. Mm. I think that the way that it handles these scandals, which is really just to raise the drawbridge and then cut off communication from a PR perspective, is an absolute disaster. Mm. So hopefully it will learn but i think even huawei and its founder has admitted that to put on western shoes culturally speaking is very uncomfortable hmm. so there's always going to be tension within the organization and huawei of course has more experience than any other organization going abroad hmm. what do you think other chinese companies perhaps who are at an earlier stage what's the lessons that you think they are drawing when they look at the experiences of Huawei? Well, 
I think it's not so transferable because of the sensitivity of the sector. Mm. You know, and if you take a look at the top brands abroad in China that are in Western markets, you know, they're pretty much exclusively games. Mm. Um, and like Elex, E-L-E-X, you know, has many titles that are considered brands mm. by, say, Brand Z. Mm-hmm. But again, they're not drawing the lessons of the difference between marketing and sales. Mm-hmm. It's still ultimately a sales-driven operation for most companies. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that that has sunk in for the reasons we've discussed. Mm. Now, Huawei has a ton of PR people mm-hmm. now. It's got a huge comms team, including many international comms people. It's got a, a roster of of highly priced international agencies. Are they not providing this advice? I think, as my mother used to say, there's many a slip between the cup and the lip. Mm. Ultimately, things need to be approved, and any brand purpose, and by brand purpose, I mean the long-term relationship between consumer and brand that stays consistent yet evolves over time to create incremental revenue opportunities, needs to be led by the CEO. Mm. This is not something that can be relegated uh, to a department or delegated to a geography. Mm. So, again, we're talking about why a company exists Mm. and having the gravitational force of that manifesto, that declaration, that sacred relationship really affecting everything from R&D to the employee value proposition. Mm. So it starts from the top. Mm-hmm. And final point on, on Huawei. I mean, over the last few months, we've seen Mr. Ren, you know, come out of not quite hiding, but I think it, last time he made a public comment was in 2012 in New Zealand. And then I think he's made several more over the last few months. Uh, and they seem to be much more aggressive about rebutting um, whatever perceptions are out there. Um, is it too little too late? That's a tough question because I think that Huawei has so many assets in terms of its products. Mm-hmm. They're good products, and they really should be doing better. Ultimately, there's a difference between rebutting, however, and restructuring. Mm. Right. And if Mr. Run can really understand that success in and internalize that success abroad requires a different operating model, Mm. then perhaps there's a chance. It really depends on what's in the mind and the heart of Mr. Run and his organizational chieftains, but it's still very much an engineering-run company. Mm. Okay, well, let's move on from Chinese brands to multinational companies Mm -hmm. in China. Now, I recall a a period, again, around 10 years ago, and and longer, in fact, when... um, MNCs were spending a lot mm-hmm. in China, whether that was on marketing or um, advertising or PR, and they were um, growing uh, in in that country. And that seems to have changed now. Um, th- there seems to be a lot more conservatism on the part of MNCs in China. And I wonder how you see the experiences that they're having in the country today versus, let's say, 10 to 15 years ago. There's been a huge regression, mm-hmm. um, and it's sad. And I think it goes back to the disorientation caused by the e-commerce ecosystem. Mm. I think 
again, there is such a desire for Western brands. But I think Western business leaders have lost their nerve, hmm. both in terms of the people that they put in place and also their strategic priorities. It's hard to overstate the impact of e-commerce on China's marketing landscape. And it's very difficult to find examples of the, harnessing the power of technology and data in a way that elevates the engagement with consumers in terms of whether it be equity reinforcing experience or even in terms of personalization and customization of offer. Mm -hmm. So, for example, Alimama, the big data concern of Alibaba, you know, obviously has its goal to become true partners and develop a new model of marketing, which is all about personalization. Mm -hmm. But then there are so many barriers to that. You know, who controls and sees the data, whether the data is even arranged in a customer-centric way multinational companies that have made progress like KFC or Yum rather they own their own data and they're using their own data to make the experience better mm -hmm. and that those companies are just beginning many companies are just beginning this journey and i would also say that there has been a loss of faith in the power of what i would call top-down communications, which shapes the message, mm -hmm. uh, regardless of whether it's delivered digitally or whether it is delivered by traditional broadcast. Mm. And it's, as a result, resulted in a landscape where brand building is almost said in a tongue-in-cheek way. Mm. And that's really unfortunate. And I don't think it's durable, mm. you know, because I think that China consumer demands brands that they believe in and even though the young chinese consumer are much more experimental with brands and passions and life you know than the, the 80s generation for example uh the ultimate result is going to be lowering price and that's mm. not good okay we'll talk about the change in the chinese consumer in the moment but just to stay on this uh topic of mnc's do you see any changes in the in the kind of operating climate for them as well I haven't noticed significant changes in the operating climate. Mm -hmm. I think that as long as you're not in a non-strategic industry, I'm assuming by operating climate, you're talking about business friendliness. Exactly, yes. Um, I think that non-strategic industries, it's pretty f competitive. Mm. In strategic industries, it's completely uncompetitive. Right. And, and that's been the case since mm -hmm. I, w I started in China in 1994. You mm -hmm. know, So... I don't think that they're facing new barriers in terms of protectionism. Mm -hmm. you know, the car tariffs have been the car tariffs. You know, the, the, the joint venture agreements have been the same joint venture agreements. You know, mm -hmm. so I don't think that there's been a major shift there. Actually, mm -hmm. okay, all right. So you just mentioned that the changes in terms of um, the Chinese consumer that becoming more experimental, um, perhaps as as newer consumers um, come online. Um, how are you seeing that change? Well, it all starts with insight. If I were to, and by insight, I mean basic motivation and intentions in the heart of young people. Long story short, due to connectivity, 
there are so many more options out there in terms of lifestyle, in terms of passion exploration, in terms of the ability to theoretically live your life by doing what you love as opposed to abiding by a rigid conventional hierarchical constraint. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, there's great uncertainty because there's no one to show you the path on this great open plane. Right. Consumers need Sherpas. Mm. And so they're not and they're not finding them. And brands have an opportunity, by the way, to be mm. in a, you know, appropriate way these Sherpas through this minefield of uncertainty and mm. an evolution of society. So if you take a look at the two basic ways that Chinese consumers are changing. One, they are affiliating much more with subtribes. Mm. So whereas before you wanted the approval and acknowledgement of broader society, now it's the people that matter, like-minded warriors, people like me that share similar interests. Mm. And then the second way that things are evolving is the uh, importance of social currency as opposed to just external acknowledgement that are that is traditional mm -hmm. and that really is evolving with of course the social media networks mm -hmm. so really you are having a much more disoriented but still somewhat optimistic uh, consumer that has much more freedom but a limited arsenal of tools and that's why the pursuit of multi-dimensional pursuit of passions mm -hmm. which is one more evolution is happening right now it's not passions to just be satisfied and have internal gratification passions are weapons on the battlefield of life you know if you take a look at chinese who love to travel for example mm -hmm. they're not just going there to enjoy foreign culture they're going to take that knowledge and then use it at some point later in life in the toolbox of life mm -hmm. so even if you are to go too deep into one passion that's almost considered a little bit of a risk because mm -hmm. you're focusing too much of your resources in one area but those are changes mm. the golden rules of marketing have not changed the expression of them have and by golden rules i mean basically three one the externalization of benefit so everything is a means to an end everything is has to have a payoff a soap gel all right you know it has to give you your skin you know, a buzz that starts your day in the right way, you know, and then luxury goods have to lubricate your social networks, you know. Mm -hmm. um, second is that in order to charge a price premium, you have to ex uh, maximize external consumption. This has always been the case, you know, mm -hmm. except in a few items inside the home where health is important and protecting the family is important and third is the importance of reassurance mm -hmm. and reassurance can be done in a fun way a modern way but safeguard soap you know which is germ kill is still the leading brand but it uses f4 or 4f the boy band you know to sell its 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 goods you know mm -hmm. the entire ecosystem of e-commerce malls all right as opposed to brand specific sites that people go to is mm -hmm. designed again to reassure Mm -hmm. When you take a look at Singles Day, that's a government-imposed holiday to reassure consumers that China's shift from an export and investment-led economy to a consumption-driven economy is on course. Mm -hmm. That's happy reassurance. Mm -hmm. So these things you know, are evolving, but they're still ultimately staying the same. So the trick of marketing in China is to say, what is changing 
and what is not changing and what is the expression of timeless marketing imperatives in a culture that is gradually evolving. Mm. Is it as simple as to describe it as a rise in individualism? No, there's no rise in individualism. Mm. Um, uh, we need to define our terms. Uh, mm. Individualism in the Western sense is the encouragement of society to define oneself independent of society. Mm. There is a huge increase in the need for identity affirmation. Right. And as I just mentioned before, there is a huge increase in the need for the generation of social currency uh, in a society that is increasingly digitalized and forming virtual relationships. Mm. So, And there's also identity experimentation that's happening that never happened before, but that's happening again from the safety of the virtual space. Mm. Once you get into the real world, once you have your obligations, people become much more conservative. Mm. There is still no Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, mm. or uh, Henry Ford on the horizon in China. Mm. It is still Western individualism that is considered a threat to order and stability. Mm. And crossing the red line of rebellion is a one-way ticket to the land of outcasts. Mm -hmm. You still get ahead in China by mastering convention, by mastering received wisdom, mm -hmm. possibly reinterpreting it, possibly weaving around visible and invisible barriers, but in general, there is no rise in individualism. And that is perhaps my most controversial point, because mm. I don't see it, and other people will claim that it's there. Yeah. What do you make of the rise of Chinese hip-hop, for example? I make it that it's a fashion statement. Mm. Chinese hip-hop, uh, EDM, electric mm -hmm. dance music, these are all largely um, fashion statements. If you go into the lyrics, actually, mm -hmm. of hip-hop, you know, and I was curious about this. You've been reading Higher Brothers lyrics? Uh, yes. They're very conventional. Mm. I mean, there's not rebellion in there. There's maybe ennui, all right? Mm -hmm. But it's not rebellious. I mean, if you think about what hip-hop was and, mm. and still continues to be in, in, in the United States in particular, it is the standing up of an entire previously subjugated mm -hmm. cultural minority or minority and says the way we express ourselves has beauty too. It is rebellious in the deepest just do it sense of the word. Mm -hmm. Right. But in China, it's really just the, the trappings rather than the... I would say so. And, and again, maybe it's more than just trappings. Okay. Mm -hmm. It is a reflection of a desire of self-expression mm. but what people are not willing to cross that red line into rebellion mm -hmm. you know i remember just uh, six months ago or so ago nike you know just put out in what used to be called television commercials but now are called media neutral filmic expression um that was a joke <laughs> but a fairly quote-unquote rebellious ad called don't call me baby Mm -hmm. And it was about young kids who were asserting their independence from their parents. You know, they're going to work out there and you know, they're going to uh, be athletes, even though it doesn't make sense in the traditional Chinese culture. Mm -hmm. But if you really take a look at how that ad was constructed, there was, again, 
no rebellion against parents. They were standing aside somewhat befuddled. And at the end, you still had applause for the kids who had achieved something. So you were still gaining, again, that social currency. Mm. So Nike, which five years ago did a very quintessentially Chinese strategy of yong yun dong, you sports, mm -hmm. has evolved its messaging. Mm. But it still is not rebellious. It still is not the, the colon... Uh, ad that caused so much Colin Kaepernick, Kaepernick yeah. ad that had that caused so much um, controversy in the West. Sure, and finally, this I, this kind of spirit of experimentation. Do do you see that extending to the career choices that young Chinese are making? Aspirationally, yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, the fact that you can be a Airbnb host now, where you couldn't before is very much on the minds of Chinese people. But again, I would caution us to not confuse life stage mm -hmm. and aspiration with where people eventually land. Mm. One statistic I read, which sort of supports this point, is that 60% of Chinese post-95s mm -hmm. have the hopes of making their living as an online influencer. Now, we know that that's a statistical impossibility. So what happens to the other 59.9% of that population? Mm. Ultimately, the safest choice is still the conventional path. Yes, there will be more career choices because the economy is becoming more diversified. Mm -hmm. But still, concrete is the safest. And the draw of people into the BAT ecosystem, which is seen as big and safe and measurable and reliable, where you can learn and arm yourself with skills, mm -hmm. in some ways is just a reinterpretation of the convention. Mm. I know it's kind of pointless to do this, but it doesn't sound that dissimilar in a way from what I see in India, um, where you do see a kind of a, a muted individualism, um, which is a little tempered by this kind of pressure to still conform to certain norms and safer career choices. I don't know if that's something you've given much thought to. Well, I, I have given a little bit of thought to it, uh, mm -hmm. unscientific thought. I think what we need to think about when we differentiate India from China is similarities and differences. Mm -hmm. Both India and China are fundamentally hierarchical societies. Yep. Uh, and that hierarchy is hardwired into the smallest social interactions. Mm -hmm. But where I think India differs is it's not a Confucian culture. And one of the things about Confucian culture is it's not just regimented, it's hugely ambitious. Mm. And the ambitions are trenchant and they go down to the lower levels of society. Mm -hmm. What have I what I've observed uh, of the burgeoning ambitions in in India is it's primarily a middle class phenomenon. Mm -hmm. So when you talk to a peasant, or not a peasant, a migrant worker, mm -hmm. uh, they really want to move forward, and they really want their family to uh, climb to the top of Mount Glory, mm -hmm. even though that Mount Glory will be defined differently than it would be for somebody who is you know, a member of the elite. Mm -hmm. So I think the big difference is how deep ambition goes, and I think that that's one reason why China has grown at a faster pace for decades uh, than India, except recently, mm. because of that deeply rooted ambition, which is powered by the people. Mm.
I think they also have a any well structurally. Yeah, but but but, but structurally, it's also a reflection of that ambition. I mean, yeah, sure. If you take right. a look at the yep. the government structure, it's a Confucian yep. government structure. It's mm. top down, liberating the energies of the bottom up. You know, yeah, but without rebelling. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting actually, because when you look at the soft power equation, you see the you know almost like the opposite. Oh yeah, of it for the same reason. Absolutely. I mean, India's soft power. Mm. will be huge you know uh china's soft power will always be constrained right. if if non-existent mm. because when chinese people go abroad or when chinese people present themselves to the world they become very protective mm. self-protective and their natural ebullience their natural uh, humor energy um doesn't come through mm. and that's going to be a huge risk in terms of not risk. This is it depends on the point of view. But for China's global aspirations, it's a, it's a huge handicap. But it's also reassuring in the sense that uh, the Western powers and countries like India, which do have soft power, won't be really threatened fundamentally by the rise of a commercial power. Mm. Yeah, indeed. So we have about five minutes left, and I really wanted to ask you for your views on the agency world. Um, in particular, the holding groups, where you spent many years. Yes. Um, so we've seen so much consolidation. J JWT is, is now known as Wonderman Thompson, and YNR is now VML, YNR, and I suspect the consolidation won't stop there. I mean, how, how did you see this coming when, when you left the holding group environment? Yes, because I thought, speaking very bluntly, that WPP, under the leadership of Martin Sorrell, was not as skilled as some of the other holding companies at aggregating resources in a way that facilitated collaboration. Mm. You know, it basically either created bespoke agencies uh, under Martin Sorrell's horizontality mm. um, ethos mandate, or think people were left just to fend for themselves. Mm -hmm. And when you need to have an alignment between top-down message clarity and equity generation and bottom-up uh, data harnessing and relationship marketing and technological um, engagement, you really need to start thinking, okay, what are the assets that we have? Mm -hmm. And uh, how should they be clustered? Where should media pl planning be as opposed to media buying? In the PR world, right, there's mm -hmm. a huge difference between, say, traditional PR uh, which is really just uh, media management and, you know, new what was called at Edelman Communications Marketing, mm -hmm. where you're really trying to do peer-to-peer -peer and, you know, provide value in, in consumers' lives through that engagement. That needs to be idea-driven. That is lateral, right? And that mm -hmm. needs to be, again, an expression of a brand purpose or a dimensionalization. And so there was none of that clustering going on. Mm. I think, you know, some of the companies that have done it better, you know, is Omnicom, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, IPG. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they are not under siege in the same way that Publicis, which in effect has created mega silos, mm -hmm. or WPP, which is now creating Frankensteinian entities that don't have clear mission statements that are going to rally the market and the people. Mm. Uh, so I, I saw it happening within WPP. I still think that there is a very important 
role for the advertising agency mm-hmm. because it somehow fuses you know systematic thinking with creative thinking um, and conceptual thinking uh, but resources need to be reallocated and smart holding companies will do that based on skill set and desired client output rather than just putting two things together one data the other creativity mm-hmm. but what's the bridge between them and what's the structure so there's going to be hard times happening i don't think everything can be disintermediated because i don't think most companies have the scale or the resources for that but mm-hmm. i do think that you know data will become increasingly important but it will not be the whole end game and people will recognize that very soon mm. so there's more there's more there's more pain ahead but it doesn't need to be you know the end of days that that's what i wanted to ask you there's more pain ahead but you don't think it's terminal given the threats that seem to be facing the holding group model they almost sometimes seem like existential threats you know it does feel existential and i would even go as far to say that dark days are coming but night is not falling permanently okay the need for brands and what a brand is requires what holding companies can offer. Mm. And if we had holding company leaders that were true brand people, and they, or at least the leaders surrounded themselves with true brand people, you know, I would even call them in some ways traditionalists in their belief in the power of brands, then I think you would have... Um, a much easier time through this transition. Mm. So okay. the, the weapon will be inflicted by ourselves. Mm. And and again, I take a look at companies like Edelman, you know, and I take mm. a look at what they've done to transform themselves, you know, and how they've reallocated their resources and how they've tried to elevate, you know, as everybody else is, you know, degrading. Mm. And they're being, uh, at least from the outside, extraordinarily successful. You know, so... No, brand still has power, and it's time for the holding companies to recognize that. All right. Well, Tom, thank you so much. My pleasure. For your time. We could have, I feel like we could have gone on even longer, um, but maybe we'll have you back on the podcast um, at some point, hopefully. So thank you very much. My pleasure. Nice to be here. You've been listening to The Echo Chamber. Brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by Marketeers. Sponsored by The Bullet Group, putting you in tomorrow's conversations today.